The president of Ukraine is expected to join world leaders at the G7 summit in Japan as the group plans new sanctions on Russia for its invasion. It's Friday, May 19th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, the Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking top-secret documents is due in court today to try and win his release. Former U.S. Attorney Andrew Lelling doesn't think that'll happen. I think Judge Hennessy is unlikely to release him, but um, I think it was smart of the defense to take a shot at it. Also this hour. Republicans cannot be rewarded for hostage taking, trying to get extreme ideas in that they couldn't get in even in the budget negotiations that happen every year. Some progressive Democrats do not want President Biden negotiating with the GOP over raising the debt ceiling. And we meet the politician expected to become the first woman mayor of Philadelphia. Sunny, near 70 today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will try to attend the G7 summit in Japan in person this weekend, according to a source close to the president's office. NPR's Joanna Kikissis reports from Kyiv, Zelensky has arrived in Saudi Arabia for a summit of Arab leaders. A source close to the Ukrainian leader's office told NPR that Zelensky is hoping to fly to Hiroshima and meet face-to-face with the leaders of seven top industrial nations. The G7 summit is expected to focus on support for Ukraine and a possible peace plan. G7 leaders are also imposing more sanctions on Russia. Oleksiy Danilov, the Secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, told State TV that important decisions will be made in Hiroshima and that Zelensky's physical presence there was, quote, absolutely important. Zelensky is expected to push for more sophisticated weapons, especially F-16 fighter jets. Joanna Kikissis, NPR News, Kyiv. Congress has about two weeks left to act to increase the government's borrowing ability, the debt ceiling. Otherwise, the government won't have enough money to pay its bills. Vice President Harris, in a virtual meeting with Democratic activists, warned that Congress needs to raise the debt ceiling immediately. Back in 2011, we saw that even coming close to a default, even coming close, can hurt our nation's economy and families. Negotiators for President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are meeting. Both Biden and McCarthy have expressed cautious optimism about the talks. A Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking classified Pentagon documents online is set to return to federal court today in Massachusetts. A judge is preparing to decide whether Jack Teixeira should remain in jail while he's waiting for his trial. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt has signed a law banning gender-affirming health care for minors. But Oklahoma's Republican Attorney General is signing on to an agreement to not enforce that law as the case is heard in federal court. From member station KGOU, Logan Layden has more. Despite fervent protests from the state's few Democratic lawmakers and trans rights advocates, the ban on gender-affirming care passed through the state legislature and was eagerly signed by the governor. But now the state's Republican Attorney General, Gettner Drummond, is joining with the ACLU, the families of transgender adolescents, and medical providers in a non-enforcement agreement as federal litigation over the law continues. While the agreement makes it clear the AG isn't conceding anything or acknowledging any harm, it does instruct him not to enforce the law for the time being. In a statement, Drummond's office says a temporary stay of enforcement allows more time to mount the strongest possible defense of the legislation. For NPR News, I'm Logan Layden in Oklahoma City. 
You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. At least one Boston city councilor and a conservative advocacy group are calling for Boston City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo to resign. That follows allegations of election meddling on his behalf by U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins in last year's race for Suffolk DA. WBUR's Walter Ruthman reports those allegations were part of two federal ethics investigations. Federal investigators portrayed Rollins as a de facto campaign advisor to Arroyo as he challenged interim Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden. Rollins exchanged hundreds of text messages with Arroyo, and she leaked damaging information about Hayden. Private texts from Arroyo show he supported Rollins' intervention. Rollins has said she will resign from the U.S. Attorney's Office by the end of the day. Boston at-large city councilor Aaron Murphy says Arroyo should resign, too. And I think my colleagues should join me in asking for that because it doesn't make us a stronger body if we're allowing behavior like that. Arroyo says he was not contacted by federal investigators and that the reports show no wrongdoing on his part. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Governor Moore Healy's administration will use nearly $250 million to build or preserve housing for low-income residents. That'll cover more than 1,500 affordable housing units as the state faces an affordable housing shortage. The money comes from pandemic-era funds and state and federal tax credits. Climate change could affect where people live in New England. Maura Hoplamazian reports on an event this week that focused on how people are already moving due to extreme weather and sea level rise. Parts of New England are more protected and could serve as a climate haven. But researchers say that will take a lot of work. Linda Shai, a Cornell professor and the leader of a project on climate adaptation in New England, says people want to move to places with jobs, housing and family networks. But many of those are at more climate risk. So I think that if people actually do want to attract people, they are going to have to put in significant efforts to make the infrastructure, the housing and the people here actually be one that would be able to accommodate significant numbers of people to move here. Shai says addressing the things that are already making communities unaffordable or inequitable can help municipalities prepare to welcome climate migrants in the future. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. Municipal workers in Boston can use artificial intelligence software for city business. Guidelines obtained by the Boston Globe show workers can use these programs for a variety of tasks, including email and memo writing. The city warns workers must be careful not to include sensitive information in AI-generated content. They must also alert colleagues when AI is used to create content. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. And Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Tonight is Game 2 of the playoff series between the Celtics and the Miami Miami Heat. Boston dropped Game 1 on Wednesday. Also tonight, the Red Sox visit the San Diego Padres. Mostly sunny today and near 70. Cloudy overnight. Temperatures will get to the 50s. Cloudy tomorrow with rain in the afternoon and evening. It'll be in the 60s. Morning showers and then sun on Sunday in the 70s. Right now it's 49 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Total Wine and More, 
where in-store teams can recommend a Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila for any occasion. Learn more at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. What might it take to raise the nation's debt ceiling to avoid a default and potential economic mayhem? Short of a deal being reached across the aisle, a group of Democratic senators are asking President Biden to take an unprecedented step and invoke a clause in the 14th Amendment as a workaround. Senator Tina Smith of Minnesota is leading the effort. She joins us this morning. Uh, Senator, what do you say to Treasury Department Secretary Janet Yellen, who says that uh, if President Biden invoked the 14th Amendment, it would create a constitutional crisis? Well, first, I think that if anyone can find a reasonable agreement to get us out of this mess, it's President Biden. And it's um, the the Republicans should take the uh, threat of default off the table immediately. I think that what Secretary Yellen is saying is that the Biden administration and the president are negotiating in good faith to try to find a path forward. But if the choice we have is between default, which would be disastrous, and the president um, using the clause in the 14th Amendment, which says that the validity of public debt shall not be questioned, we believe strongly, I believe strongly, that he should use that 14th Amendment authority to avoid the disaster of default. The U.S. has never gone into default, so how do we know for sure that it'll be disastrous? Well, what we do is we look at what all of the financial experts are telling us. You're right, it would be unprecedented. Um, The People like Moody's, for example, are telling us that it could threaten to risk losing 7 million uh, jobs. Mortgage rates and credit card interest rates would go up, potentially take away $10 trillion in household wealth in this country. Because what it would do is it would take the core of our financial system, which is trust, and it would shatter it by saying that the United States of America would not be able to pay its debts and pay its bills. And that would have not only consequences for Americans, but it would have global consequences. But the constitutional crisis that Secretary uh, Yellen is talking about, um, how, I mean, if if President Biden were to invoke the 14th Amendment, um, it would seem like it would be challenged immediately legally. So we would solve a financial crisis, but then invoke a constitutional crisis. Well, I think that we would certainly expect it to be challenged legally, and that's why we see this 14th Amendment um, as um, approach as it's like a break the glass emergency. Um, rather than facing the, the terrible damage that default would pose to us, let's make sure that, that everybody knows that we have another um, option on the table. But I think if you look at what it says in the 14th Amendment and the constitutional experts and lawyers and folks like uh, Lawrence Tribe and even past presidents have said that this is, yes, it's an untested um, um, option, but it is not theoretical. It's actually pretty straightforward. Uh, it says that the validity of public debt shall not be questioned. You know, the president is faced with a choice. Should he follow the Constitution and the 14th Amendment? Should he faithfully execute the law uh, by paying the bills that Congress has incurred? Really quick, Senator, you left out three words there. The validity of public death authorized by law shall not be questioned. And Congress is is the only uh, branch of government that can pass laws. But Congress has passed laws um, authorizing and, in fact, requiring the president to, um, to, to pay the bills that we have because 
those bills have uh, come about because of the laws that we passed for spending. So the president is in effect faced with two choices, right? Should he follow the debt limit law or should he follow the appropriations bills and laws that Congress has passed that incurred that, um, that spending requirement to begin with? That's the choice and that's his odd constitutional obligation, I think, to uh, make sure that we live up to our obligations and avoid default. How do you perceive the risk, though? Because the president's senior aides are, are they're worried about the risks of acting without Congress. Well, that's right. Of course they're worried. And that is why we should do everything we can to come to a reasonable agreement. But the challenge we have here, A, is that we have in the U.S. House of Representatives um, leaders that are threatening default if President Biden doesn't give in to them. They're um, suggesting that what we should do in order to avoid default is to throw people and children off of health care, take away their food support. And that is just an unconscionable choice to put us all in and bad for the country. That's Democratic Senator Tina Smith of Minnesota. Senator, thanks. Thank you. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is making an appearance at the G7 meeting in Japan, either in person or virtually. That part is still unclear. What is clear is that as Ukraine prepares for its counteroffensive against Russia, Zelensky is making effort to rally support from the world's wealthiest nations. Host nation Japan is also trying to forge consensus among the leaders on issues that include nuclear weapons and China's more aggressive policies. NPR's Anthony Kuhn is in Hiroshima and joins us for an update. Good morning. Hi, Layla. Okay, so we're getting mixed messages on whether Zelensky is going to be there in person or virtually, but what does he expect to get out of his appearance in front of G7 leaders? Well, as you said, it's a bit unclear. The head of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council told National TV that Zelensky needs to be here in Hiroshima because important decisions will be made. But Zelensky's office says he'll attend virtually. Japan's government hasn't confirmed either option. But at any rate, G7 meetings leading up to today's summit have already seen officials recommit to supporting Ukraine militarily and financially for as long as it takes. We don't know how long it could take. We don't know whether this aid will prove decisive on the battlefield. Uh, certainly, if Zelensky makes Japan his first trip to Asia since Russia's invasion, that would certainly be a good optic for Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, who's trying to show leadership on Ukraine. Now, Japan is also trying to craft a united approach to China. What does that look like? Well, Prime Minister Kishida is emphasizing that China must act responsibly and not try to change the status quo, such as on Taiwan, by force. Uh, but like the Biden administration, Tokyo also wants to engage with Beijing. Uh, I spoke to Cabinet Secretary for Public Affairs, Noriyuki Shikata, and here's how he put it. There are areas you know, where there could be cooperation on global issues, such as you know, global health issues, climate change. So... That's why, you know, we are uh, talking about this uh, building constructive and stable uh, relationship. But we should note, though, that China still mostly sees the G7 as a bunch of Western nations ganging up on it. Now, you're in Hiroshima where the G7 summit is happening. What's the significance of the actual city, the venue where it's being held? Well, Hiroshima was the first city to suffer a nuclear attack in 1945, and Japan is trying to use that powerful symbolism to unite G7 leaders on global challenges, including nuclear weapons. So the leaders visited the Peace Park here near Ground Zero. They visited a museum and spoke to a survivor of the attack, an 85-year-old woman who told them that such a disaster must never be repeated. 
Uh, Japan definitely has a special role to play in pushing for the elimination of nuclear weapons, but it's really difficult because at the same time, Japan relies on U.S. nuclear weapons for its security. Speaking of the U.S., President Biden is there in Japan, but he did cancel the rest of his trip to Australia, then Papua New Guinea to get back here over the debt ceiling crisis. How has that news been received there in Asia? Yeah. There's some disappointment here, but it's not the first time that's happened. I spoke to Brad Glosserman, who's a deputy director at the Tama University Center for Rulemaking Strategies in Tokyo, and here's what he said. I very rarely, if ever, in fact, see a non-U.S. voice, particularly from the region, saying, oh my God, this is the end of American leadership, or or this is a real real body blow. American credibility is like, okay, here we go again. And of course, as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told the G7, a U.S. debt default could trigger a global economic downturn. So I think many observers in Asia are just fine with Biden heading home to prevent that from happening. That's NPR's Anthony Kuhn joining us from Hiroshima, Japan. Thank you. Thank you. What if the person who greets you at the pearly gates is a woman in a bathrobe wearing a headset sitting in front of a green screen of clouds? 777, thanks for calling heaven. This is Denise. Denise is also known as Heaven's receptionist on TikTok, and she's helping social media users process grief in a whole new way. NPR's Emily Olson has a story. Denise is anything but high and mighty. She's been known to gossip. Stacey, look at this email I just got from Shakespeare. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. <laughs> I'm not reading all that. It's like eight pages long. She complains. I always got the nerve to go, do you know who I am? <laughs> Do you know who my boss is? (laughs) Delusion. And she'll definitely put her foot down every now and again. Looks like you made 48 Starbucks baristas cry. And that does, that does ding your credit up here. But at the end of the day, Denise is a people person. She warmly welcomes the recently deceased into heaven. Her playful approach to a dark topic has helped this character stand out on a platform that can often be a sea of noise and distraction. People started having this emotional reaction saying, I don't know why, but I'm crying. Or like, I know exactly why this touched me because I just lost my mom. I just lost my my baby or I just lost my friend. That's Taryn Delaney-Smith, the 26-year-old creator behind the character. She says she wasn't expecting much when she made her first Denise video back in March. But today, these videos have been viewed more than 35 million times. Smith was a TikTok star before all this, and an offline celebrity as well. She was crowned Miss New York in 2022 and was the runner-up in the Miss America pageant. But Denise seems to hit different than her other content. Smith says she gets hundreds of comments and emails with personal stories of lost loved ones. Recently, she started incorporating some of those stories. That's all right, come forward. I know who you are. You're Jerry, right? We've been waiting for you. You are so loved. I'm already getting prayer mail for you. It wasn't her plan to give millions of social media users a safe space to grieve. But in effect, that's what she's done. It is when you choose to love someone, you're also accepting the fact that one day you might grieve them. It doesn't just have to be sad. It can also be really happy, too. And funny and silly, but also just beautiful. I just think that's what love is. Smith says as long as people keep finding meaning in Denise... The gossip, the phone calls, and the warm-hearted welcomes will keep coming. Emily Olson, NPR News.
This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for sticking with WBUR this week. Coming up in three minutes on Morning Edition, an interview with Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, who identifies as a nationalist and says he would expand on former President Trump's America First message. It's 720. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, empower a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty, on stage May 25th to June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. When David Simon created the TV show The Wire two decades ago, streaming wasn't a factor and artificial intelligence was the stuff of science fiction. Now he says everything has changed. You can't live on three weeks' salary. That's what's happening now. We'll talk with the veteran showrunner about why the Writers Guild of America is striking on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Sunny with a high near 70 today, increasing clouds tonight and a low around 52. Tomorrow, more clouds move in and there's a good chance of showers, mainly afternoon. The high will be near 66. There's a slight chance Sunday may start with more showers, then turning mostly sunny with a high near 74. Right now, it's 50 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for dedicated and forward-thinking individuals to join their growing team. More information, including application, at progressive.com careers. From Proven Winners Colored Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors at garden centers nationwide. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. 37-year-old entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy is running for president as a Republican. Born in Ohio to parents who emigrated from India, he says he can expand on Donald Trump's America First message. I will unapologetically embrace and advance the ideals that this nation was founded on. I believe that we ought to be willing to make a sacrifice to advance those ideals, to fight to advance those ideals. And I believe that Maybe you would classify me as a nationalist if you have to use a label. I think it's a label I'm willing to wear. He spoke to Susan Davis and Asma Khalid of the NPR Politics podcast and said that many people place too much emphasis on race and sexual identity. I grew up into a generation where I was taught, we were all taught, I think, to believe that diversity is our strength. I, I reject that vision. I don't think our diversity is our strength. I think our strength is what unites us across that diversity. That is not America to me. I mean, it's the America I see sometimes today, but it's not the America I know. It's not the America that I learned to pledge allegiance to as a kid. That America is grounded on a set of ideals that brought us together and measured across the backdrop of common ideals. Yes, our diversity can be a beautiful thing, but without that, it's it's a meaningless physical attribute. And so that's what bothers me about it is I think that it 
calls on us to see one another as less than the full humans that we really are, when we see one another instead as bound by a common set of ideals, and even when we disagree about how to apply those ideals, that we're able to debate them in the open with full respect for one another as fully thinking, autonomous human beings, that's what actually allows the American lifeblood to revive itself rather than to be lost in this identitarian dilemma that we now find ourselves in. Let's talk about some of the issues that are important to both Republican primary voters and the country as a whole. But let's start here, Mr. Ramaswamy. Do you believe that Joe Biden was the lawfully elected president in 2020? I think that in the in the technical sense of that word, he's obviously the lawfully elected president. I think that in a deeper sense, I'm deeply bothered by, for example, the Hunter Biden laptop story suppression that really was in the name of suppressing misinformation, actually created misinformation across the news media and all, all the boards. So I have a lot of issues with the suppression of information by social media companies and internet companies that led up to that election. And do I believe that there's, I mean, it's not a dispute. So I think that's a problem. But in the technical sense of, you know, do I think that there was large scale ballot fraud or whatever that changed the election outcome based on how the votes were counted? I have seen no evidence of that. I want to ask you about an issue that was key in the minds of many voters during these most recent midterms, and that's abortion. Would you sign further abortion restrictions into federal law? I would not, um, but I am pro-life. For years, I was an opponent of Roe v. Wade. I think it was constitutionally wrongly decided. I think Dobbs was correct to overturn it because the federal government has no business here. Murder laws are governed by the states. So if abortion is a form of murder, which is the pro-life position, and I am pro-life, then it would make no sense for that to be the one law that was still governed at the federal level. But a federal ban violates the constitutional principle that led us to actually overturn Roe versus Wade, which is why I would not sign a federal abortion ban. Mr. Ramaswamy, you know, in terms of prepping for this interview, I was listening to a lot of interviews you've done, uh, reading through other reports. And one of the takeaways that I had is that it seems you want to make a number of decisions unilaterally. For example, abolishing the Department of Education, shutting down the FBI, deploying troops to the U.S. border, ending affirmative action. So the question I have is, do you see any limits on the power of the presidency? Of course. It's called the Constitution. And so you know, let's take the last one of ending affirmative action by executive order. The reason why I say that is it was created by executive order. So I'm just talking about rescinding an old executive order, Lyndon Johnson's executive order 11246, which requires anyone who does business with the federal government to actually adopt effectively race-based quota systems. I'll end that by executive order. So I'm a careful student of the Constitution. I think there are certain things a president can and ought to do without asking Congress for permission or forgiveness. I think running the executive branch of the government is on that list. There are many things like, for example, my position to make political expression a civil right, I'd love to do that. But a president can't do that without actually working through Congress. And then there's things that the federal government, both the president and Congress shouldn't be doing that should be left to the states. This is actually you know, where our abortion discussion came in. And so I think it's important to have a clear-eyed constitutional perspective of what falls into each category. I believe that I do, and I will govern accordingly. You've also proposed a change to the Constitution, at least one. You're promoting raising the voting age to be 25. It seems like a difficult pitch to win over young voters in this country. Why did you Why did you make that decision? Well, I want to be precise about what I actually said. Uh, so I would support a constitutional amendment. This would require widespread support for an amendment to the Constitution, of course, that would raise the voting age to 25, but still allow you to vote at age 18 if you either serve for six months in the military or a first responder role, 
or else, even if you don't serve, if you pass the same civics test that every immigrant has to pass in order to become a citizen of this country. Now you're saying there would be two different thresholds for when you get to vote. Yeah, so we lowered the voting age to 18 in the context of the military draft. That was the justification in 1971 for lowering the voting age. So you're right. You can't do this by law because if it was by law, it would be unconstitutional. But if you're following the constitutional process to amend the Constitution, as we have 27 times over, for the better, adding equal protection under the law for race, no discrimination on voting on the basis of race, making the voting age 18, telling, giving women the right to vote, that's a constitutional amendment process. I think we should go through that constitutional amendment process to attach civic duties to voting. Now, the why, though, that's the more important question, and you asked it. I think we have a loss of civic pride in our country. I think people, young people included, do not value a country that they simply inherit. I think we value a country that we have a stake in building. And I think that asking a young person, asking any citizen to know something about the country before voting, I think is a perfectly reasonable condition. Or else, if you don't know something about the country, we already ask immigrants to know this, by the way. So it's not making up some new test. No matter your skin color, if you've been a taxpaying green card holder for 10 years, you still have to pass that test to vote. I don't think it's unreasonable to ask a young American to do the same thing, or else if they don't want to do that, to at least serve for six months in the military or first responder role, or else to have some life experience as an adult, at least by the age of 25. You can hear more of the conversation with Vivek Ramaswamy today on the NPR Politics Podcast. This is NPR News. Welcome to Friday. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, WBUR's Deborah Becker has a preview of a hearing today in which a judge is expected to decide whether accused leaker Jack Teixeira will remain in custody ahead of his trial for espionage. It's it's 729. A quick reminder that the WBUR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the WBUR app in your app store today. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative. This is Nutter, online at nutter.com. And Huntington Theatre, just announced. Don't miss Huntington artistic director Loretta Greco's first season in Boston, featuring seven shows, including a musical and a reimagined classic. Season ticket packages available now, starting at just $156. Learn more at HuntingtonTheatre.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to join this week's G7 summit in Japan. It's unclear if Zelensky will do so virtually or if he'll travel to Hiroshima to take part in the meetings in person. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the major issue at the summit. Earlier today, President Biden and other world leaders pledged not to waver in their support of Kyiv and announced new sanctions against Moscow. President Biden is scheduled to return from the G7 summit on Sunday amid ongoing negotiations with Republicans in Congress to reach a deal to raise the debt limit. NPR's David Gurup says Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen met with banking executives yesterday as time grows shorter for Congress to take action to prevent a default. Yellen and more than two dozen bank executives, including the heads of Citigroup, Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase, talked about the recent turmoil in the banking system and President Biden's economic policies. But they spent a good chunk of time discussing the debt limit as the White House and congressional leaders are trying to hammer out a deal to avoid a default. 
According to a readout from the Treasury Department, Yellen outlined how failing to raise the debt limit would be, quote, catastrophic for the financial system. And she said the consequences of inaction would be severe. David Gura, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking classified documents online is due back in court today. A judge is expected to decide whether 21-year-old Jack Teixeira should remain in custody until his trial. Former Massachusetts U.S. Attorney Andrew Lelling thinks he will. I think Judge Hennessy is unlikely to release him, but um, I think it was smart of the defense to take a shot at it to sort of get their ducks in a row and put together a package in the hopes that the court goes for it. In court filings earlier this week, federal prosecutors claimed Teixeira was caught twice taking notes on classified information in a secure facility. He was told by his superiors to stop, but prosecutors say he didn't. WBWAR's Deborah Becker will have more on the case coming up in a few minutes here on Morning Edition. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey are calling on President Biden to use a constitutional maneuver to raise the debt ceiling. They're joining a group of Democrats that want the president to invoke the 14th Amendment. Legal scholars think that would let the president raise the debt ceiling without congressional approval. Biden is in talks with Republicans to raise the ceiling and avoid default, but the GOP is asking for major budget cuts. The conductor of the Cape Cod Symphony is leaving after more than 15 years on the job. Conductor Jung Ho Park says he'll step down after this year's summer season. The Cape Cod Symphony has already begun its search for a new conductor. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Russell's Garden Center. Seven acres of plant varieties, unique bird feeders, and garden decor. A shopping experience for beginning and advanced gardeners. Russell's Route 20 Wayland. Tonight at the Garden, it's Game 2 of the NBA Eastern Conference Finals. The Celtics trail the Miami Heat one game to nothing. The Red Sox begin a week-long West Coast road trip tonight as they visit the San Diego Padres. Clear skies and near 70 today. Tonight, some clouds move in and it falls to the low 50s. Tomorrow, mid-60s with a good chance of rain in the afternoon. Mostly sunny on Sunday in the mid-70s. Right now, it's 51 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. The 21-year-old Massachusetts National Guard airman accused of leaking sensitive U.S. intelligence on the Internet faces another court hearing today. A judge is expected to decide whether Jack Teixeira can be released to his father while awaiting trial on espionage charges. From member station WBUR reporter Deborah Becker joins us to talk about the latest in this case. Deborah, what's the defense expected to argue? They're expected to say that Teixeira is young, he's always lived in Massachusetts, has no criminal record or history of violence. 
Defense attorneys say if he's released, Teixeira would be in the custody of his dad, who's a former correction officer. His stepfather is a former National Guard member. And they say Teixeira would adhere to any strict conditions, such as electronic monitoring, staying away from guns and computers. They wrote in a brief that they feel the prosecution's characterizations of Teixeira as a flight risk are exaggerated. And in a new court filing this week, they point to other espionage cases where the accused have been released pre-trial under a set of strict conditions. And what about the prosecution? The government has said Teixeira should continue to be held in a Massachusetts jail because they say he's proven he doesn't follow the rules. Mm. In their new filing this week, they say Teixeira's supervisors at the base in Massachusetts reprimanded him repeatedly for accessing sensitive documents, but he ignored them. They questioned whether Teixeira would abide by any bail conditions set by the judge, and the documents that Teixeira allegedly posted in an online chat group pertain to the war in Ukraine and U.S. spy operations. So prosecutors have also argued that a foreign government could offer to help Teixeira leave the U.S. in exchange for other information that he might have. And additionally, the prosecutors say Teixeira is a flight risk. He's facing serious charges that carry a maximum of 25 years in prison. Now, this is the second detention hearing. Why was a second hearing necessary? The judge in this case, federal judge David Hennessy, held a lengthy hearing on this last month, about mm-hmm. two weeks after Teixeira was arrested. Judge Hennessy took the case under advisement. Former federal prosecutors say it's likely that the judge is considering the defense claims about Teixeira's age and his lack of a criminal record and is giving the defense time to put together a release proposal. So at today's hearing, presumably that proposal will be gone over as well as any new arguments. Uh, about what prosecutors might cite for keeping him in custody. Now, prosecutors have mentioned they have other evidence against Teixeira? That's right. Uh, Prosecutors said during a search of the home that Teixeira was living in with his mother and stepfather, FBI agents found a gun locker near his bed containing handguns and rifles, an AK-style high-capacity weapon, a gas mask. Mm. Also, an FBI affidavit alleges that Teixeira sent messages to members of a private group on a gaming site that encouraged and threatened violence. And they say when Teixeira was 16 years old, he was suspended from high school after a classmate overheard him make remarks about weapons and guns at school. Teixeira disputed that at the time and said he had been talking about a video game. That's WBUR reporter Deborah Becker. Thanks, Deborah. You're welcome. Sherelle Parker won the Democratic mayoral primary this week in Philadelphia. It's a Democratic Party stronghold, so she's expected to win the general election in November. Now, if she does, she'll become the first woman mayor to lead the city. I spoke with Sherelle Parker earlier about how crime is a major concern in Philadelphia. The issue is also at the top of voters' minds across the country. But I started off by asking her about her primary win. I really want to thank the people of our great city, the People Power Coalition that we put together, quite frankly, that transcended race, class, gender, religion in every portion of the city, uh, and particularly those people whose lives are feeling the most pain in our city. Those are the people whose voices were heard loud and clear. 
And one of the things, Cheryl, that I do for a living is listen to people's voices, as you have listened to people's voices as well. I hear in your voice someone that's very, very tired. How much has this taken out of you, at least for now? Well, I'm actually much stronger now, believe it or not, than I was a couple of days ago. I was dealing with some some dental issues. Um, And you're right. My voice is a tad bit strained because we worked until 8 o'clock on Tuesday night, doing our best to reach people in every corner in our city. Our message regarding a safer, cleaner, and greener city that will provide access to economic opportunity for all, it resonated. Now, you've gone against the more progressive wing of your party by pledging to hire hundreds of police officers and bringing back so-called uh, constitutional stop and frisk. What would you like progressives who backed someone else in the primary to know about you? What would you like to say to them? I would like them to know that, unlike others, my real life lived experience is closest to the people feeling the most pain in our city. I am the mother, a single working mom, to a 10-year-old a black boy and never Will I allow our great city to turn back the hands of time and think that our law enforcement officers, our police, are able to misuse and abuse their power by inflicting a pain amongst black and brown people just because they're black and brown? Law enforcement has to. They must know that a crime is taking place. Will take place or is currently in action, those things have to be present. There has to be just cause and reasonable suspicion. Sherelle, if you do wind up winning in the general election in November, you become the city's first woman mayor. What would that mean to you and and what do you hope to accomplish if elected uh, to, to maybe carve a new path or a different path from your predecessors? A, what my hope is if I do win is that it will lay a concrete path for other women from all walks of life, black girls, brown girls, white girls, girls and boys, to be quite frank. That's Sherelle Parker, Philadelphia's Democratic mayoral candidate. Uh, Sherelle, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, Ed. NPR Scott Simon speaks with Sigourney Weaver, one of the stars of writer-director Paul Schrader's latest film, Master Gardener. That story coming up Saturday on Weekend Edition. To listen, tell your smart speaker to play NPR or ask for your member station by name. This is NPR News. It's a Friday on WBUR. Coming up at 745 on Morning Edition, we remember Nobel Prize winning American economist Robert Lucas, who has died at age 85. Sunny and near 70 degrees today. Tonight, low 50s and some clouds move in. There's a good chance of rain on Saturday, mostly in the afternoon. Temperatures will be in the mid-60s. It gradually clears for mostly sunny skies on Sunday with temperatures in the low 70s. It's 52 degrees in Boston. A reminder that the Sumner Tunnel will be closed tonight and all weekend for construction work. Drivers headed from Logan Airport into downtown Boston will have to use the Ted Williams Tunnel. And you should expect 
plenty of delays in that tunnel. Sumner will be back open for the Monday morning commute. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And BMW, the BMW i4, has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Boston-based General Electric has a new CFO. Rahul Guy will start the job later this year. He's already the CFO of GE's aerospace spinoff. Milford-based lab instrument maker Waters Corporation has wrapped up a billion-dollar deal to buy a California company. The deal is for Wyatt Technology, which makes different kinds of instruments. Leaders at Waters say the deal will help them stay competitive with emerging medical technologies. One of Boston's tallest buildings is now open to its first residence. The 691-foot-tall Winthrop Center is in the financial district. It includes more than 300 residential units. Office space in the building should open this summer. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and Southampton, England on Queen Mary 2. With a commitment to White Star service, fine dining, and entertainment, cunard.com crossing. From Capital One, with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Details at CapitalOne.com. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank, USA, NA and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. The world of economics lost a major force this week. Nobel Prize-winning economist Robert Lucas died on Monday. He was 85. Our colleagues Darian Woods and Adrian Ma of the Indicator from Planet Money podcast explain how Lucas changed the field of macroeconomics. Robert Lucas was one of the most important economists over the last 50 years. Born in Yakima, Washington, he went on scholarship to the University of Chicago. We called his one-time colleague a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, John Cochran. He really was a giant in the field. I think he's not so well-known outside economics, but a lot of us would put him as the most influential economist of the 20th century. When you look at what economists do now, it's Lucas, Lucas, Lucas. (laughs) And according to John Cochran, he was also a great colleague. I showed up as a uh, assistant professor in the University of Chicago, fresh out of Berkeley. Didn't know much about anything. (laughs) And uh, Bob treated me, a brash young assistant professor who didn't know much of anything, like a full colleague. One of his big contributions can be understood by going back to the high inflation period of the 1970s. Back then, economists talked about this inverse relationship between inflation and unemployment. And the idea is that when inflation is low, unemployment tends to be high. And when inflation is high, unemployment tends to be low. So 
that is kind of similar to what we have now. Prices have been rising faster than we'd like, but unemployment is very low. There are tons of jobs out there. What was different then was that some economists and policymakers were arguing that inflation was the lesser of two evils. Those economists quickly decided that wasn't just a correlation, that was something exploitable. Uh, let's have a little more inflation and we could really beat down unemployment. Bob Lucas really kicked it out of the park to understand that this correlation wouldn't last once you try to exploit it. Uh, that it was just a correlation. So, you know, um, rich guys drive uh, BMWs. That doesn't mean giving everyone a BMW is going to make us all rich, right? Robert Lucas was saying that those other economists were missing something. They were missing that people respond to changes of the rules of the game. And at some point, what might have worked in the past stops working. Yes, yeah, so you can end up with higher inflation and high unemployment, the worst of both possible worlds. Here's Robert Lucas on NPR in 1996 talking about his findings. There's less of a need for government to play a role as an active stabilizer of an unstable system. We've come to the realization that government is less able to do that than we once thought. What's really powerful about Robert Lucas's insights is that it can be applied anywhere, not just to inflation. Anytime you're thinking about a new policy, economists have to answer this question. How would people respond? And simply saying, well, based on history, they're going to respond this way, that's not good enough. Economists call this the Lucas critique. Essentially, the Lucas critique pointed out that the economy isn't a chessboard where you can just shift the pieces around with a formula. Your opponent will probably figure it out and change how they play. Adrian Ma, Darian Woods, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. This is NPR News. You've made it to the end of the week with WBUR. Coming up in just a couple minutes on Morning Edition, we hear from Kennedy Ryan, an author who's helped mainstream romance novels that feature Black and Indigenous characters struggling with topics like domestic abuse and land rights. And at 810, there may soon be a vaccine available for a respiratory virus that currently leads to tens of thousands of babies ending up in hospitals each year. It's 750. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum. Presenting Spirits, Saring Sherpa with Robert Beer, closes May 29th. More at PEM.org. The U.S. military promised to implement policies that would counter extremism in its ranks. The services took in more than 200 reports of extremist activity just last year. So has the Pentagon made progress? We're really stalled out on an issue that's incredibly important. You know, it's like a drop of poison that can destroy all the water. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to join G7 leaders at their summit in Japan, either in person or virtually. In Massachusetts, a federal judge could decide today if the Air National Guardsmen accused of leaking military documents online can go free before trial. 
And in Washington, congressional lawmakers still plan to recess next week despite ongoing talks about the debt ceiling. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Fresh Food Generation Restaurant and Catering, from scratch meals that combine New England ingredients with Caribbean and Southern flavors. FreshFoodGeneration.com. Sunny skies and temperatures near 70 today. It grows a bit cloudy tonight and falls to the low 50s. Tomorrow, more clouds move in and rain is likely in the afternoon. It'll be in the mid-60s. Right now, it's 52 degrees in Boston at 751. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. Most romance books have at least one thing in common, a happily ever after. But there aren't too many that deal with topics such as indigenous land rights and domestic abuse in the sports world along the way. Author Kennedy Ryan's novels are different like that, and her romances are poised to reach a wider audience. A mainstream publisher is reissuing five of her previously self-published titles starting later this month, and a TV series based on another one of her books is now in development. NPR's Chloe Veltman has more. Kennedy Ryan's love stories are packed with friendship and spicy sex, but the impulse that drives her to write them is darker. My books come from indignation, from female rage. Often it'll be something in the news that grabs the author's attention, like the incident that inspired her award-winning novel Longshot. A football player knocked his then-girlfriend out in the elevator and it went viral. Or footage of the 2016 Dakota Pipeline protest, which kick-started The Kingmaker, a book exploring climate change and indigenous land rights. It's the first of five previously self-published Ryan titles about to be reissued by Bloom Books. So many people are saying that climate change is not real. And I wanted to see a hero who was passionate about it. I just hadn't seen that in romance. The author spins out this intense, real-life source material into fictions full of joy and angst. Best-selling romance author Jasmine Guillory says the hard-won happy ending is what makes Ryan's books so bingeable. Readers love to know that they're going to go through some hard times, but they're going to really appreciate it in the end. She pulls on my heartstrings. I end up crying every time I read her. Hameko de Guzman is standing in a long line under the hot sun, patiently waiting to meet Ryan, one of her favorite authors, at the 2023 Los Angeles Times Festival of Books. I've read her Hookshot series, um, The Rebel King, Queen Move. But quite a few of the people standing in line haven't read any of Ryan's books yet. They're here through word of mouth, like de Guzman's friend, Tiffany Hargrave. I don't know what I'm getting into, but I'm sure it's going to be great. In addition to autographing books and giving out hugs in her grass green dress and gold floral earrings, Ryan spends quite a bit of time warning new readers like Hargrave about what to expect. There is content warnings right here, just in case you need them. Beyond taking readers on a hot-blooded emotional journey, Ryan stands out because she's unafraid to bend the rules of the genre. So says Jennifer Prokop, romance critic and co-host of the popular weekly podcast Fated Mates of Ryan's 2022 novel Before I Let Go. Currently being adapted for TV, the novel focuses on a couple that's gotten divorced. Marriage and trouble is the trope that we have in romance, right? But like marriage is over? That is not a trope we have in romance, really. And so there is something to be said for admiring someone who really can break a romance rule and make us still buy it. Divorce isn't something Ryan has dealt with in her own life. The writer says she and her husband have been married for 26 years. 
people ask, how do you write these amazing heroes who are so compassionate and kind? And it comes from having those kinds of men in my life. And my husband is chief in that. Best-selling romance novelist Sarah McLean is the other co-host of the Fated Mates podcast. She says Ryan writes so compellingly on topics outside of her own experience because she approaches her task like she's an investigative journalist. I don't know that I have ever met a romance writer who does book for book the amount of research and character work that Kennedy does. Take the case of her tempestuous novel, The Kingmaker, in which a Native American activist and the heir to a giant fossil fuel corporation fall madly in love. Ryan says her research involved speaking with several indigenous women. Andrea LeBeau is a member of the Fort McDowell Yavapai Nation in Arizona. She was among those Ryan connected with via Facebook. I rarely see Native American heroes or heroines in romance books. So I was equal parts exhilarated and scared, to be honest, because there's a lot of harm that could be done with writing a culture that's not your own. Ryan's background is different from the indigenous heroine in The Kingmaker. She's black, was brought up by church pastors in North Carolina, and has mostly lived in big urban centres like San Diego and Atlanta. LeBeau says she shared her experiences of reservation life with the novelist and provided feedback on the manuscript. I wanted her to get it right as closely as she could without overstepping. Like LeBeau, Ryan, who's 50, didn't see her own identity reflected in the romance space when she was growing up in the 1980s and 90s. The thing about romance at that point, it was so white cishet. There weren't a lot of options that were diverse. On top of that, she had to keep her interest in the genre under wraps. Ryan says her mom wouldn't allow romance books inside the house. And I would hide them under my mattress and I would tuck them in the back of my closet. And that went on for years. Ryan says she let her romance habit go for a while, but in her 30s, she found her way back to it when she hit a rough patch in her life. She was feeling overwhelmed, juggling public relations and journalism gigs, running an autism nonprofit, and parenting an autistic son. I needed something kind of for myself. She started reading romance again and then decided to give writing it a try. And the readout for Best Contemporary Romance Long goes to... Long Shot by Kennedy Wright. In 2019, Ryan made history as the first black author to win one of the most prestigious romance awards. In her acceptance speech, she didn't shy away from talking about the romance industry's long-standing diversity problem. Is 37 years waiting for someone who looked like me to stand here? Veteran romance writer Beverly Jenkins was in the audience for the occasion. Very, very proud of her that night. Jenkins is a trailblazer herself, one of the first black romance authors to find mainstream success back in the mid-1990s. Jenkins says Ryan's win was a small step towards the greater inclusivity we're seeing in romance publishing today. You got writers who are writing queer. You have got South Asian heroes and heroines. You have men writing, trans people writing. But, of course, the industry can do more. According to data from publishing industry tracker Sakana Bookscan, the top white romance authors still sell hundreds of thousands more print copies than their best-selling non-white counterparts. But sales of Ryan's books and other titles by diverse authors have grown exponentially over the past few years, owing to mainstream interest in the romance genre and a demand for greater diversity among younger readers. Kennedy Ryan says things are changing in her life for the better. 
My little pod is my husband, my son, and me. And for so long, it felt like us against the world. And now it's feeling like the world is for us, you know? She says it's like her own hard-won, happily ever after. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman, Ami Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com, and MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, mathworks.com. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger. And this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will join G7 leaders meeting in Japan, either virtually or in person, as they unveil new sanctions against Russia. It's Friday, May 19th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, new Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass has a $1.3 billion plan to address homelessness. Advocates worry it doesn't get to the root of the problem. The homelessness crisis we have here has been decades in the making. It really comes down to a lack of housing production. Plus, this is a disease we've been trying to prevent for half a century. An FDA panel has recommended approval of the first vaccine that would protect babies against the respiratory virus RSV. Also this hour, Disney says it's canceling plans for a billion-dollar office campus in Florida. Sunny and near 70 today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is going to make an appearance at the G7 meeting this weekend in Japan. But NPR's Anthony Kuhn says it's not yet clear if he'll be there in person. The head of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council told National TV that Zelensky needs to be here in Hiroshima because important decisions will be made. But Zelensky's office says he'll attend virtually. Japan's government hasn't confirmed either option. At any rate, G7 meetings leading up to today's summit have already seen officials recommit to supporting Ukraine militarily and financially for as long as it takes. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reporting. The Ukrainian president is in Saudi Arabia. Zelensky is going to attend the summit of the Arab League. A group of Democrats is urging President Biden to use the 14th Amendment to raise the nation's debt ceiling. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the unprecedented move could potentially allow Biden to override Congress on the grounds that their failure to lift the borrowing limit is unconstitutional. The effort is being led by Senator Bernie Sanders, who caucuses with the Democrats. They say the spending cuts that House Republicans are demanding in exchange for raising the debt ceiling are unacceptable. In a letter to President Biden, the lawmakers are urging him to invoke the 14th Amendment, which says in part the validity of the public debt shall not be questioned. That's something that has never happened before and would likely face legal challenges. Biden is continuing negotiations with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy during his trip to the G7 summit in Japan this week. He's expected to address the debt ceiling when he returns to Washington on Sunday. 
Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Montana is the first state to ban the video sharing app TikTok. From Montana Public Radio, John Hooks reports users of the app have now asked a court to strike down the ban. The plaintiffs in a lawsuit filed in a U.S. district court in Montana are five creators on the video sharing app who live in the state and say their large followings on the platform have allowed them to build communities and earn a living. They're arguing a ban on the social media platform is unconstitutional on free speech grounds and asking the court to strike it down. TikTok itself is not part of this case, but the company has indicated it is prepared to go to court as well. Montana's attorney general says they expected legal challenges and are prepared to defend the law. For NPR News, I'm John Hooks in Butte. Today's the funeral for Jordan Neely in New York. The black man died on a city subway when a fellow rider pinned him to the floor in a chokehold. Neely's family says he had mental illness and had been homeless. Civil rights activist Al Sharpton will give the eulogy. The man accused of pinning Neely, Daniel Penny, has been charged with manslaughter. Penny's lawyers say he acted to protect himself and others. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A hearing is scheduled today on whether the Massachusetts National Guard member accused of espionage will remain in jail. Attorneys for 21-year-old Jack Teixeira say he should be allowed to await trial at home with his father. WBUR's Deborah Becker has a preview. This is the second hearing on whether Teixeira should be released. His attorneys say Teixeira's family has a history of military service and he would be closely monitored. Prosecutors say Teixeira may have more classified intelligence than what he's already accused of posting on the Internet and his pretrial release would pose a threat. Former Massachusetts U.S. Attorney Andrew Lelling says that's a strong argument to keep him in custody. Since he had access to sensitive military information, one, does he have more? Two, is a foreign power tempted to solicit him to leave the country and go somewhere else in exchange for whatever information he possesses? Lelling expects the judge to make a decision today. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins plans to resign today. Two federal ethics investigations showed she improperly attended a Democratic political fundraiser and sought to influence last year's Suffolk County District Attorney's election. Now, some are calling on the candidate Rollins tried to help to resign as well. That's Boston City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo. Massachusetts Fiscal Alliance spokesperson Paul Diego Craney believes Arroyo encouraged Rollins to leak private documents to smear interim DA Kevin Hayden. The city councilor used an incredibly powerful government agency to invoke harm on his political opponent. And that should never be ever tolerated in any circumstance. Arroyo says the reports do not allege any wrongdoing on his part. Technology services for the city of Lowell are back up and running after a cyber attack took down phones and computers last month. City officials say they're resetting municipal computers and telephones with new security features. A ransomware group claimed responsibility for the breach and said it released city data online. State and federal investigations into the attack are ongoing.
A judge is recommending Hull hold new municipal elections. The judge ruled this week's elections are not valid. That's because a fire on Monday prevented some people from getting to the town's only voting precinct. Town officials extended voting hours to accommodate voters, but in his ruling obtained by the Hull Times, the judge determined residents were not adequately informed of the change. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. The Celtics hope to even up the NBA Eastern Conference Finals tonight. It's Game 2 against the Miami Heat at the Garden. Miami won the first game on Wednesday. The Red Sox are out west tonight to play the San Diego Padres. Mostly sunny today and near 70. Cloudy overnight. Temperatures will get to the 50s. Cloudy tomorrow with rain in the afternoon and evening. It'll be in the 60s. Morning showers and then sun on Sunday in the 70s. Right now it's 53 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include BritBox with the new season of Grace based on the detective novels by Peter James. Grace and more original mysteries, including The Bay and Karen Peary, are streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. Leaders from across the Arab world are meeting in Saudi Arabia, and someone who hasn't been in the room for more than a decade is making a reappearance. Syria's President Bashar al-Assad is officially ending years of isolation by the region's power over a civil war that has killed about half a million people. Washington has condemned the kingdom's normalization of ties with Assad. The invitation is seen as another sign of the strained relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. Also, there's a surprise visitor today. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Jeddah, where the summit is taking place, and that's also where NPR's Aya Batrawi is right now, and she joins me now. Good morning. Good morning, Leila. So, Aya, we'll get to Zelensky's surprise visit in a moment, but I want to start with Bashar al-Assad's reappearance at the summit. Quite significant. He was something of a pariah in the region over his crackdown on the opposition to his rule, the torture in prisons, the hundreds of thousands who've been killed in the civil war, and now he's just welcomed back? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, yes. There were important countries like Egypt and the United Arab Emirates that had already been building ties with Syria for years. But the big shift really happened after February's earthquakes that hit Turkey and parts of Syria. It gave Saudi Arabia the opening that it was looking for to re-engage with Syria at first for humanitarian purposes. But not everyone in the region agrees with this embrace of Assad. Um, the image of Assad standing with leaders today for that their, their group photo, um, shaking hands, is jarring to also many Syrians as well. I spoke with Mohammed Alaa Ghanem. He's the policy chief at the Syrian American Council, an opposition group that's calling for democracy in Syria. He says Arab states are legitimizing Assad without extracting real concessions first. Has Assad changed anything? Has Assad released uh, political prisoners, and especially women and children? Assad has made absolutely no changes, no concessions that would merit readmitting him. Uh, so sadly, normalizing uh, ties with him can only be seen as the capitulation. So this war started in protests against Assad's rule. They were violently repressed. That led to a civil war. Saudi Arabia backed the rebels trying to topple Assad. So does the Saudi invitation to Assad mean somehow that Assad has officially won? 
Well, he oversees an economy that's in tatters. U.S. sanctions are also an obstacle to how far countries can go in normalizing with him. And there are still parts of the country that are not under his control. But Russia and Iran rushed to his aid, and he wasn't toppled in the end. And now Syria's civil war is at a stalemate. Millions of Syrian refugees are looking to go back home, but they need the country needs to be rebuilt, and Arab states want a piece of that. And they're hoping Syria can reorient itself back into the Arab fold and sort of move away from Iran, which still has a big footprint there. Okay, so we obviously do need to discuss this visit from Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. What do you make of his appearance this morning? I mean, it is an unusual one because he's from Ukraine and this is a, a summit of Arab leaders. But for Zelensky, this is a chance to lay out his country's demands that Russia returns all Ukrainian territory it has annexed since 2014. And he he's making that pitch to Arab states that have close ties with Russia, both politically and economically. Saudi Arabia has an oil pact with Russia that's helped Russia's economy by keeping oil prices higher. And um, there have been Arab countries that have helped Russians evade sanctions by keeping business open. So, But for Saudi Arabia, for the crown prince, this is a chance to flex his diplomatic muscles and show that he's not going to be pressured by the U.S. or by Russia to pick sides. NPR's Aya Betraoui in Jeddah. Thank you so much. Thanks, Leila. Next winter could be just a little less miserable for many new parents. That's because doctors are one crucial step closer to getting the first RSV vaccine for newborns. Advisors to the Food and Drug Administration endorsed the vaccine late yesterday. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein joins us now to discuss. Hi, Rob. Hey, Leila. So what do we know about this vaccine? It's a twist on the vaccines people typically get to protect themselves against diseases like the flu, COVID, and measles. This is a vaccine that pregnant people would get not to protect themselves against RSV, but to protect their newborn babies. Here's how it works. The pregnant person gets the vaccine when they're four to six months pregnant to stimulate their immune systems to produce antibodies against RSV. Those antibodies then make their way to the fetus in their womb to protect them for at least the first six months after birth. Oh, wow. So how effective and how safe is it? A big study conducted by Pfizer, which developed the vaccine, found that the shot was almost 82% effective at protecting newborns against severe RSV through their first three months of life and 69% effective at protecting them against severe disease in their first six months. And you know, Leila, the question of safety is obviously a big deal and was the focus of a lot of discussion yesterday when the FDA convened an all-day meeting of the agency's outside advisors to review the vaccine. One concern was the vaccine might interfere with other vaccines. But the biggest worry was that there was a hint in the company study that women who get the vaccine are more likely to give birth prematurely. Here's Dr. Paul Offit from the University of Pennsylvania, one of the FDA advisors. I worry that if preterm births are in any way a consequence of this vaccine, that would be tragic. But other committee members say they were convinced by the vaccine's effectiveness. Here's Dr. Jay Portnoy from Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. If the vaccine actually lives up to the data that we've seen today, I can guarantee that many infants and their parents will breathe easier in the coming years. And in the end, the FDA advisors voted unanimously that the vaccine is effective and 10 to 4 that it's safe. Now, how big of a problem, how dangerous is RSV to kids and babies? 
You know, RSV is a huge problem each fall and winter. Most kids will catch RSV in their first year of life. For most, the RSV just causes, you know, like a cold. Mm -hmm. But a small but significant percentage will be hospitalized for RSV, making it the leading cause of hospitalization for very young babies. As many as 80,000 babies end up in the hospital each year because of RSV, and between 100 and 300 die, according to the CDC. How soon will this vaccine be available for infants? The FDA will now consider those votes and make a final decision by the end of August, so this vaccine could be available to protect newborns against RSV next winter. You know, and I should mention there may be another option too. The FDA is also considering what's called a monoclonal antibody shot babies could get to protect them, and the agency's already approved a vaccine to protect older people against RSV who are also at high risk for severe complications. And another vaccine for older folks from Pfizer could be approved this summer, so, you know, after decades of frustration there are finally some weapons to fight RSV in the pipeline. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein, thanks a lot. You bet. The new mayor of the city of Los Angeles, Karen Bass, plans to spend a record $1.3 billion addressing homelessness in the coming fiscal year. But what can all that money buy? And will it get to the root of a crisis that's left an estimated 42,000 people unhoused in L.A.? KCRW's Anna Scott reports. 60-year-old Yolanda Oriana had lived on and off in a makeshift tent village for months when, late last year, outreach workers offered to take her and others at the encampment to a motel. First I was skeptical, and then they said it was going to be a different way of doing things with the, a new um, mayor. Is it? We have a new mayor, and she you know, wants to help with the homeless. And so I was like, why not? The motel Oriana went to was part of a program started by that new mayor, Karen Bass inside safe. It aims to break up large street encampments one by one and move people indoors fast. Bass plans to devote a quarter of the $1.3 billion to scaling up inside safe. Some unhoused people and their advocates question that. They say the program's disorganized and that services and meals for people in it have been spotty. They have not kept their promise. We don't know what's going to happen. It's like being in the twilight zone. This is Yolanda Oriana at a press conference earlier this month, held to call out the problems with Inside Safe. And Mayor Bass says they have a fair point. We have essentially been building the plane while flying it. We are stretching all of the resources. And in the course of doing this, we are seeing lots of weaknesses, lots of problems, and we are moving to address those problems. She says the problems reflect longstanding gaps in L.A.'s social services system. I could have said, let's spend the next month, two months, three months designing a program that will meet every single need. To me, that is the antithesis of how you would respond to an emergency. Instead, Bass says she's prioritizing getting people off the streets as quickly as possible and doing what she can to build a pathway to permanent housing. Besides renting rooms for people like Oriana, Bass's spending plan calls for buying motels and converting them to transitional housing. She also wants to create new substance abuse treatment beds and provide rental assistance to vulnerable seniors, among other things. But analysts say even all that might not be enough to get to the root of the issue. The homelessness crisis we have here has been decades in the making. Jason Ward is the associate director of the RAND Center on Housing and Homelessness. It really comes down to a lack of housing production. The housing shortage has led to a massive affordability crisis that's pushing people into homelessness faster than the system can catch them. 
in an ideal world, what we want to do is work backwards from having some sort of permanent source of housing for people. It seems like the way we're taking this now is like we're working forward from like, let's get people off the streets. Which he says is incredibly important. But it's hard to see now whether it'll lead to fewer people experiencing homelessness or just a less visible crisis. Welcome to this community room, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's a couch, TV, we have tables, we can play cards or whatever. The pandemic showed that hotel or motel rooms do work to transition some people from homelessness to permanent housing. And it worked for Yolanda Oriana. Earlier this year, she moved to a shared home in South L.A., She says it's changed her daily life. And the self-esteem, because, oh my gosh, being in in that, where we were, where I was, yeah, I felt like a fish in a fishbowl. I mean, I didn't even want to get out of the tent. She says she still doesn't have all the support she needs, like a consistent case manager. But it's a lot better than the streets. For NPR News, I'm Anna Scott in Los Angeles. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Disney says it plans, it has canceled plans for a $1 billion office campus in Florida. That's coming up. And it's Friday, and that means StoryCorps tonight. Today, we hear from a nurse on the U.S.-Mexico border who remembers what it was like during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual info session May 25th, buacademy.org. The U.S. military promised to implement policies that would counter extremism in its ranks. The services took in more than 200 reports of extremist activity just last year. So has the Pentagon made progress? We're really stalled out on an issue that's incredibly important. You know, it's like a drop of poison that can destroy all the water. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Some alerts for T-Riders this weekend. There will be no Green Line service between North Station and Government Center tomorrow and Sunday. On the Orange Line, the Haymarket Station will be closed, but trains will pass through. And over on the Red Line, buses will replace trains south of Broadway every night this weekend, starting at 8.45 tonight. Sunny with a high near 70 today, increasing clouds tonight and a low around 52. Tomorrow, more clouds move in and there's good chance of showers, mainly afternoon. The high will be near 66. There's a slight chance Sunday may start with more showers, then turning mostly sunny with a high near 74. Right now, it's 54 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top choice colleges. Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling essays and college applications. More at myprompt.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. This is NPR.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadel. Disney says it's canceling plans to build a $1 billion office campus in Florida. The head of Disney's theme parks attributes the cancellation to, quote, new leadership and changing business conditions. And those changing business conditions appear to include what Disney sees as retaliation from the governor, Ron DeSantis, over its opposition to his parental rights in education bill, which critics have dubbed as the Don't Say Gay Law. NPR's Greg Allen joins us now from Miami to discuss this. Hey, Greg. Well, hi, Elena. So how big of a deal is this? This is a pretty big deal. Um, Disney began making plans two years ago to build this new complex for its creative team in Orlando. You know, it acquired the land and told some 2,000 employees they'd have to relocate to Florida. You know, as you say, it's a $1 billion project. These were to be high-paying jobs with an average salary around $120,000 a year. Canceling such a big project is a major decision for the company. In his memo, Disney Parks head Josh DeMauro said, quote, this was not an easy decision to make, but I believe it's the right one. Now, much of this is related to Disney's ongoing feud with Governor DeSantis, right? Right. And that seems to be at least a factor here. Okay. The new leadership mentioned in the Disney memo includes CEO Bob Iger, who came out of retirement recently to resume his role as company chairman. Iger reportedly was not a fan of the plan to relocate thousands of employees, including some of the so-called Imagineers who helped design the theme park attractions. Uh, plans for the project were also not popular with Disney employees who were told they'd have to relocate. But the company has also been going through this whole cost-cutting regime in an effort to boost profits. And uh, the New York Times reports that people briefed on the matter said the company's dispute with the Sanders figured prominently in the decision to cancel the project. And this all began with Disney's opposition to a Florida law that limits what people can say about gender identity and sexual orientation in school, and then it escalated, right? Right, exactly. You know, after this measure that supporters call the Parental Rights and Education Act passed last year, Disney's former CEO said he'd work to undo it. Uh, DeSantis then pushed for a law that was passed, which stripped the company of its self-governing authority. Disney, though, is a powerful company with a long history in Florida, and it fought back. The company recently filed a lawsuit against DeSantis and other officials. Here's CEO Bob Iger in a conference call with analysts last week. This is about one thing and one thing only, and that's retaliating against us for taking a position about pending legislation. And we believe that in, in, in us taking that position, we are merely exercising our right to free speech. During that call, Iger asked a rhetorical question, does the state want us to invest more, employ more people, and pay more taxes or not? I mean, that's a big question. The decision means loss of jobs. I wonder also if other big companies are watching the feud and making their own decisions. How have leaders in Florida reacted to this news? Well, you know, uh, the head of Florida's Democratic Party, Nikki Freed, blamed the cancellation on, quote, DeSantis's unhinged personal vendetta against Disney. And he said that he'd made Florida an anti-business state. Uh, no word yet from Governor DeSantis himself, but in a statement, his press secretary cited, quote, the company's financial straits and said it wasn't surprising that Disney would, quote, cancel unsuccessful ventures. NPR's Greg Allen in Miami. Thanks, Greg. You're welcome. Time for StoryCorps. Today, a story about rediscovering meaning in your work. Angelina McCall began her nursing career at an emergency room in Tucson, Arizona. It was 2020 at the height of COVID. She left that job about a year later and doubted whether she was cut out for nursing. I was very embarrassed and ashamed. And I thought, okay, well, I can't work in the ER, but I'm bilingual. I have a car and I live right on the border. My mom is from Mexico. She's an immigrant. So I thought, 
I can maybe help these migrants that are stuck at the border right now. I applied for the volunteer position at a clinic. And when I got there, people were coming in for first aid. They have an injury in their foot, wound care, blister care. And they open up and they tell me stories that are very difficult. There was one family that came in and the little girl was probably around 10. And the dad of the little girl starts to cry. And he's telling me that the reason why they left their home country was because there was someone who was trying to hurt his daughter. And he couldn't protect her down there. And I tell myself, okay, I'm going to let him know that he is in a safe place, that he is worthy of safety, love, compassion, and then be a nurse and help the young girl. That little girl drew these pictures for me, and they expressed their love for me, a stranger. And at that point, I realized the one year that I struggled in the ER, as much as I feel like I failed, I am actually using the skills that I learned. Nursing is a beautiful thing. It can be amazing to be with someone during their worst situation. And I asked myself, why did I become a nurse? And it's to do this kind of work. Angelina McCall with her husband, Matt, in Tucson, Arizona. Angelina decided not to leave nursing, and she still volunteers at the clinic on the border. Her interview is archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from Dignity Memorial, dedicated to celebrating each life with compassion and attention to detail. They help to plan life celebrations now so families don't have to later. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. Los Angeles is planning to add 100,000 new apartments downtown. Now, some fear L.A.'s fashion district and its factories won't survive the housing boom. That story coming up later today on All Things Considered. To listen, tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. And you can listen to All Things Considered here on WBUR this afternoon between 4 and 6.30. Join Lisa Mullins on the radio at 90.9 or on the WBUR mobile app. Right now, you're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. And coming up in about five minutes, we look at how laws passed in Florida and Texas that restrict care for transgender people will affect patients. It's 8.29. And as you're listening to WBUR this morning, keep in mind... We also offer a quick read of all the news that matters in Boston and beyond in your email inbox every morning. Subscribe to WBUR today at WBUR.org slash newsletters. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh Food Generation Restaurant and Catering. 
farm-to-plate Caribbean-American meals made with fresh, locally sourced ingredients. FreshFoodGeneration.com Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A court hearing is scheduled today in Massachusetts for Jack Teixeira. He's the 21-year-old member of the state's Air National Guard who's suspected of leaking dozens of classified Pentagon documents online. Lawyers for Teixeira are expected to ask a judge to release the guardsmen from custody. Deborah Becker with member station WBUR says federal prosecutors want Teixeira to remain behind bars pending trial. The documents that Teixeira allegedly posted in an online chat group pertain to the war in Ukraine and U.S. spy operations. So prosecutors have also argued that a foreign government could offer to help Teixeira leave the U.S. in exchange for other information that he might have. And additionally, the prosecutors say Teixeira is a flight risk. He's facing serious charges that carry a maximum of 25 years in prison. President Biden and other leaders at the G7 summit in Japan are pledging not to waver in their support of Ukraine as Russia's invasion nears the 15-month mark. Earlier today in Hiroshima, new sanctions were announced on Moscow. In a statement, the G7 called on Russia to halt its aggression in Ukraine immediately and withdraw its forces unconditionally. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is expected to join the talks. It's unclear if he'll do so virtually or in person. This is NPR News. From WBMR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The cities and towns that help fund the MBTA say fare hikes may be needed to help the transit agency close its budget gap. That's because those communities fear the T will never get back to its ridership levels from before the pandemic. The T is hoping to increase its budget for the next fiscal year by 7 percent, but the agency's advisory board is concerned that's based on an unrealistic jump in ridership. A controversial so-called parents' rights bill in New Hampshire is dead. Lawmakers voted down the measure that would have required schools to inform parents about their child's gender identity. WBOR's Anthony Brooks reports the vote came after an emotional year-long debate. The bill would have required schools in most circumstances to tell parents who asked if a child was exhibiting evidence of gender transition, such as switching pronouns or adopting new nicknames. Republican proponents said it would provide transparency to parents, but Democrats and LGBTQ advocates said it would lead to students being outed to unsupportive families and could result in a rise in student homelessness and suicide. After fierce and emotional debate, two Republicans defected, enough to kill the bill in the narrowly divided legislature prompting opponents to celebrate. State Rep. Jerry Cannon, a Democrat who's transgender, said, we've been heard in New Hampshire and we've set the tone for other states. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. You'll want to make sure your fans and air conditioning work this summer. That's because we're expected to have a hotter-than-average summer this year. That's according to new federal data. Johnny Infanti is with the National Weather Service Climate Prediction Center. The reason here for the increased temperatures really is based on above-normal coastal sea surface temperatures that have been surrounding New England for quite a while now. Last summer was one of the hottest on record in Boston. We had 21 days with temperatures above 90. On average, we usually only get about 14 of those days. It's 8.33. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. Tonight at the Garden, it's Game 2 of the NBA Eastern Conference Finals. The Celtics trail the Miami Heat one game to nothing. The Red Sox kick off a nine-game West Coast road trip tonight as they visit the San Diego Padres. Clear skies and near 70 today. Tonight, some clouds move in and it falls to the low 50s. Tomorrow, mid-60s with a good chance of rain in the afternoon. Mostly sunny on Sunday in the mid-70s. Right now, it's 55 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Access to medical care for transgender people is being restricted in several states where Republicans hold majorities in the legislature, and the number of bans is growing. This week, lawmakers in Texas approved a ban on gender-affirming care for minors. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis signed a similar ban into law that also restricts some care for trans adults. So what does this mean for medical providers and for their patients? To understand that, we're joined by Joey Knoll, a nurse practitioner and the medical services director at Spectrum Health, a community health center in Orlando, Florida. Good morning, Joey. Good morning, Leila. So what care under this new ban can you and can't you provide to your transgender patients now that this ban is law? Yeah, essentially, uh, we can continue to provide primary care services to our patients, but the prescribing of any hormones or gender-affirming specific regimens are completely banned. So what happens to patients who are in the middle of that type of treatment, hormone therapy treatment? What happens to them? Yeah, well, we we anticipated this coming. So we um, rushed to see all of our patients and make sure that they had plenty of prescription uh, medications available to get them through as we navigate this and come up with a more long-term solution for their needs. In a recent editorial, you wrote that this ban is a, quote, cruel and unconscionable, unscientific experiment on young people's bodies, and that Florida's governor is, quote, cutting off life-saving support for transgender young people in order to gain attention for his own political career. Can you tell me why this risks young people's lives? Well, what makes it especially cruel is that we're, we're banning health care, we're banning access to health care, and the DeSantis administration has gone further to... Um, restrict educational resources as well. Their argument has been that there's no science to support this, which is factually inaccurate. But if they were really concerned with the health and well-being, well-being of Floridians, why would they go to the great lengths of ensuring that universities are not allowed to spend any funds to do any any research on this matter? What are your patients asking you um, in the middle of all this? You said you were preparing your patients. What were they asking you and what are they saying now? Uh, the biggest question I get from my patients is, do I need to leave Florida? Am I safe here? Hmm. What about you? Uh, how have you adjusted so that you don't run afoul of this new law? 
Oh, great question. Um, you know, we're taking great lengths to to be compliant um, and and follow all the rules that we can, and also interpret it to ensure that we can do our best to meet the needs of our patients. So to try to navigate it, it's a matter of working with partners inside and outside the states, uh, just to bridge access and in in the hopes that nobody loses complete access. But this is all happening in real time, and we're already starting to see people that. Um, are struggling with access. So what does that actually look like when you say bridging that access? Are you telling your patients to go to another state to get the care they need? I mean, how how are you doing that? And what are the consequences for you if you do break this new law? Yeah, good questions. So we are working with some of our out-of-state colleagues that are going to visit Florida. Um, We have, you know, thousands and thousands of patients that need access to care. And the law does allow, um, at some point, MDs and DOs to be able to uh, continue these services. It just happens that our organization, like a lot of organizations, um, is comprised of nurse practitioners. And um, myself and my colleagues in my practice, we are autonomous nurse practitioners, which means we do not have a requirement to tether to a physician. So we find ourselves in the situation where we did not have an MD or DO. Mm. So we're working with um, some physicians outside of state that will travel to Florida intermittently to serve these patients. Now, for people who actually agree with the gov- with what the governor has done, who say maybe minors are too young to make these decisions about their bodies, what would you say to them? Yeah, I would say that um, they probably haven't spent enough time getting to know trans people. The rhetoric that the governor and, and uh, you know the the rest of the uh, opponents to GAT keep using is that they want to protect kids, help kids be kids. The truth is, we're not talking about five and six year olds. We're talking about 16, 17, 18 year olds. And so I, I think that preserving access to care for these individuals is important. And if we were worried about health and safety, we would ensure that people already on treatment would be able to continue. Joey Knoll is a nurse practitioner and the medical service director at Spectrum Health. Thank you so much. Thank you. Stand-up comedy is hard, especially in China. A comedian there is under investigation, and the company he works with was hit with a steep fine after he did a bit that included part of an army slogan. Chinese authorities thought it was, well, not funny. NPR's John Ruich reports. Li Haoshi, whose stage name is House, cracked the joke at a club in Beijing. Video of it is making the rounds on social media. The joke goes like this. Li says he moved to Shanghai recently and adopted a pair of wild dogs from the countryside. In the city, he says, they're like apex predators. And one day the dogs bolted after a squirrel, like cannonballs, he says. That made him think of eight words. Fine style of work capable of winning battles. That line is part of a People's Liberation Army slogan, coined by none other than Chinese leader Xi Jinping a decade ago. It's widely deployed to this day, like here, where troops are seen in a video shouting those words as they march in double time in a parade. The fallout from the bombed joke has been swift. Lee canceled upcoming performances and expressed his remorse and regret online. 
He said the joke was unsuitable and had brought about bad feelings, and he said he would reflect deeply on the transgression. But that wasn't enough. This week, Beijing authorities fined the company that booked Li more than $2 million. It also barred the troupe indefinitely from future performances in the Chinese capital. Shanghai, where the company's based, quickly followed suit. This video from the People's Daily, a Communist Party newspaper, lays into Li Haoshi for crossing a line. Culture creators, it says, shouldn't only think about commercial interests and not their social responsibilities. This case should be an example for others that only high-quality spiritual content should be provided to the masses. Beijing police say they've opened an investigation into Li. In recent years, China has criminalized slander against martyrs, heroes, and the Chinese military. If Li's found guilty, he may end up doing prison time. And that's no joke. John Ruich, NPR News, Shanghai. This is NPR News. It's a Friday on WBUR. Coming up at 845, we have the story of two women who have made a successful business out of challenging Atlanta's private parking enforcement industry. Sunny and near 70 degrees today. Tonight, low 50s and some clouds move in. There's a good chance of rain on Saturday, mostly in the afternoon. Temperatures will be in the mid-60s. It gradually clears for mostly sunny skies on Sunday with temperatures in the low 70s. Right now, it's 55 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style event, window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo and Natick and Innuendo.com. Senator Ed Markey wants to require car makers to keep AM radios in new vehicles. Some automakers, such as Ford, plan to remove them from all new cars. Markey calls AM radio essential during emergencies. We cannot allow this resilient and popular communication tool to become a relic of the past. Automakers say one reason they're eliminating AM radios is because electromagnetic interference from new electric motors can disrupt the reception of AM signals. Two new factories that have been in the works for nearly two decades finally opened yesterday in Boylston. The massive buildings are next door to each other. They're both connected to Rand Whitney, the packaging business owned by Patriots owner Robert Kraft. The Boston Business Journal reports the factories will help meet the demand for cardboard boxes, which has spiked since the start of the pandemic. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. With a range of up to 301 miles, the BMW i4 is 100% electric and 100% BMW. The first all-electric BMW i4 is available at your local BMW centers. At NPR, we don't just sit in the host chair. We take the shows to the news and find the voices you need to hear. We're reporters at heart. I'm Leila Falden, host of Morning Edition. I've covered everything from a coup in Egypt, the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, to the war in Ukraine. And I want to remind you that your old car could help keep that work going. Donate it to this station, and it will go towards keeping our reporters in the field. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org slash cars. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. Two women in Atlanta have a hot new business, taking the boots off of cars. Those metal clamps that get attached to the wheel of a car, that is a boot. The women in this case wear masks, but they call themselves the boot girls. And in a matter of weeks, they've built up a following on social media. And when it turns, you pull it out, yeah, and then you put it back together, and you turn it back, and you sit that to the side. <laughs> NPR's Fernando Alfonso rode along with them. He's here now. So, Fernando, all right, tell us about your day with the boot girls. You know, it was definitely a uh, evening to remember. We met here in Buckhead, and they pull up in a Honda, and the two women are in the back in their balaclavas and their corduroy outfits. Uh, on their phones, clearly tending to their growing social media presence. Basically, we sped off to go immediately remove a boot. So what are their names? Or or could they tell you their names? They go by aliases, you know, Boot Shiesty, Boot Baby. Um, They (laughs) decline to share their names because what they are engaged in is considered to be illegal by Atlanta police. So did someone like call them up like they'd call an Uber, but for getting rid of a boot from a car? I mean, essentially, I mean, what they have done is harness the power of TikTok and Instagram. People can reach out to them and almost in a minute's notice, they can be at your vehicle. They get out, they do their business, leave the boot to the side, take some selfies with the owner of the vehicle who's just elated. They average around 40 to 50 boot removals in a day at $50 a pop. So we're talking over $2,000 every single day. And do people try to challenge getting the boot on their car in court? Are they maybe facing walls that they can't get around? So boom, that's where they call the boot girls and that's where they come in? Absolutely. So these 30 or so parking enforcement companies, which are privately owned, are very hard to pin down in court. I think most people find that it is much easier just to pay Sometimes what can be hundreds of dollars than to challenge the boot. What you have here is a private organization basically locking you out of your vehicle because they perceive that you have parked someplace on private property that you're not supposed to. And these two women have become these Robin Hood characters that are truly shining a light on a practice that has been long criticized in Atlanta. There is a bill that is poised to get voted on by the Georgia Senate in January. And the hope is, among a lot of residents, that it will finally ban booting here in Georgia. So what are the boot girls' plans? I mean, how much longer do they think they can keep doing this for? As of the last time I spoke with them, they have recruited four more people to their team. So now there's six of them (laughs) I guess I will just leave Boot Baby to basically explain what the future holds for them. We're just going to keep on taking off boots until we can't no more and see where it goes day by day. Fernando, all I've been thinking about while I've been talking to you is like, if I ever got myself in this kind of situation, why don't I just buy a key? The reality is you can. It is not illegal, according to Atlanta police, to buy these keys. Where it gets very funny is it is apparently illegal, at least in Atlanta, to use those keys. That's NPR's Fernando Alfonso, and you can see photos of the boot girls in action at npr.org. Fernando, thanks for sharing the story. Thank you so much. We reached out to several of the booting companies for comment, and they did not respond. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. 
You've made it to the end of the week with WBUR. Coming up in the next few minutes, the economic impact of Taylor Swift as she plays three sold-out shows at Gillette Stadium. That's on the Marketplace Morning Report, but this is a good time to mention that the widespread excitement about Swift's arrival has reached the governor's office. Moore Healy issued a governor's citation yesterday recognizing Taylor Allison Swift's enchanting performances. The citation goes on to say that Mass Massachusetts is ready for the weekend of its, quote, wildest dreams. It's important to note this isn't the first time Healy has alluded to her appreciation of Swift. Her first tweet as governor quoted Swift, declaring, it's me. Hi. Swift's first show in Foxborough is tonight. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Evita at ART. Experience the groundbreaking revival of the Tony Award-winning rock opera. Don't keep your distance. Now through July 16th, amrep.org. And Davis Mom, committed to knowing the lay of the land, not just the law. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. On last week's Wait, Wait, Alonzo Bowden was skeptical of the new rules forcing airlines to treat people better. I travel a ton being a stand-up comic, and um, I have platinum status with the airlines, and they treat me horribly. I don't know what they're doing to Group 5. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. Your first-class ticket to this week's Wait, Wait comes with a gourmet meal, assuming you're a gourmet cook. Join us for a staycation with the News Quiz from NPR tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday mor- Friday morning. A federal judge is expected to decide today whether the Massachusetts Air National Guardsmen accused of leaking classified documents will remain in custody. Leaders of the G7 nations meeting in Japan plan to tighten sanctions on Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. And Disney is canceling plans for a $1 billion campus in Florida, amid a legal fight with that state's governor. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Sunny skies and temperatures near 70 today. Right now it's 56 degrees in Boston at 8.52. Internet companies hang on to a key legal shield. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at uipath.com marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. Learn more at schwab.com slash why Schwab. For Marketplace, I'm Novasafo in for David Brancaccio. First, there could be a debt ceiling vote soon. Both the White House and congressional leaders say negotiators are making progress. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has the, has the latest. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy told reporters he thinks negotiators will reach a deal to raise or suspend the debt limit in time for a House vote on it next week. McCarthy sounded more optimistic than he did last week. He says negotiations are in a much better place. Some congressional Democrats aren't so happy, though. They're pushing back against McCarthy's demands for stricter work requirements for some federal aid programs like SNAP. 
Congressman Ro Khanna of California said he would strongly consider voting against the bill if stronger work requirements were added. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders complained that Senate Democrats weren't getting updates on the talks and don't know what's happening. The White House says there's been steady progress. President Biden had a 20 to 30 minute chat with his negotiators and, quote, made clear the need to protect essential programs. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. In a pair of rulings yesterday, the Supreme Court decided in favor of Twitter in a case brought by the family of a victim of a terrorist attack. The family accused the social media company of aiding extremist groups because their content appeared on its platform. The high court also sidestepped the need to directly address a legal shield known as Section 230, which protects social media companies from being held liable for what users publish. Dina Temple-Raston explains. The justices focused their attention mostly on Twitter versus Tomna, which was looking at the question of whether Twitter's content encouraged a terrorist attack on a Turkish nightclub. And the long and short of it is that the court said it didn't think platforms were responsible. As they saw it, a neutral recommendation algorithm can't be seen as aiding and abetting terrorists. And the justices said their decision in Tomna informs this second case, Google versus Gonzalez. That's a case that asks whether YouTube and its parent Google should be liable for radicalizing young men who attacked Paris in 2015 because their recommendations algorithm fed them ISIS content. Naomi Gonzalez is an American student who was killed in those attacks. Tomna, the justices said, resolves that question. So they sent the Gonzalez case back to the Ninth Circuit, and they said that the judges there could look at one little part of the case that Tomna doesn't address— whether Google's revenue-sharing model provided revenue to ISIS and in that way somehow aided and abetted a terrorist group. So it looks like Section 230 lives another day, though Justice Jackson hinted that this wasn't over. She wrote that the decision was a narrow one, and they could decide differently if the facts of a future case were also different. For Marketplace, I'm Dina Temple-Raston. Let's do the numbers. While overseas, the FTSE in London rose four-tenths percent. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are up, but just barely for the NASDAQ. The Dow future is up about 100 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is up at 3.69 percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Total Wine and More, where you can find a new favorite Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. And by Odoo, a full suite of integrated business management software dedicated to helping businesses of all sizes with manufacturing, project, and inventory management. Odoo.com. Recognize that tune? Well, Taylor Swift fans are definitely ready for it. Tonight is the first of three sold-out shows at a football stadium in Foxborough, Massachusetts, that's near Boston. It's the latest stop on Swift's Eras Tour, which has brought throngs of fans to cities around the country, including a member of our own staff. The tour's economic impact is one few artists can replicate, as Marketplace's Henry Epp reports. Back in January, hairdressers at a dry bar hair salon in Houston started seeing a lot of bookings for one particular weekend in April. At first, we were all like, what's going on that weekend? Jamie James manages the salon. We were all like trying to figure out what was happening. Maybe it was prom or something? Nope. Taylor Swift was coming to town and her diehard fans wanted to look good for the Eras Tour. The clients that are coming in are probably going to want different hairstyles from her different eras. 
James and her colleagues studied up on those styles, and it paid off. She says they booked close to 100 more clients than usual that weekend. Economic effects like this are playing out everywhere Swift stops. Parking and restaurants and just everything around those venues is going to be chalked to the gills with people. David Herlihy is a professor in the music industry program at Northeastern University. He says Swift herself really stands to profit. He estimates she'll make five to seven million dollars a night just on tickets. She's also selling hundreds of thousands of pieces of merchandise for every concert, and she's getting 85 percent of that revenue. Some of that money will be coming from Carrie Simonelli of Lincoln, Rhode Island. As she wrote in an essay for the Boston Globe, she's the mom of two teenage girls who are huge Taylor Swift fans, especially her youngest daughter, Meredith. She has like a Taylor Swift collage behind her bed and she prints out song lyrics. Simonelli found herself among the thousands of people waiting in endless virtual lines on Ticketmaster's website last November. That well-publicized fiasco led to lawsuits and a congressional hearing. She was finally able to get two tickets for this Sunday's show for nearly $900. But I was like, this is it. This is your birthday present. This is part of your Christmas present. Don't ask for anything else. It's tempting to think this tour is a sign that the live music industry is thriving post-pandemic, but it's more complicated than that, says Andrew Leff, a professor of music industry at USC. There are really two music industries going on right now, one for the 1% and one for the 99%. Leff says less popular artists than Swift face high touring costs and venues and promoters who are trying to make up for lost pandemic years. They're going to go with the sure bets or the traditional artists that they know will bring in revenue rather than taking chances on younger artists. Still, he's planning to take his daughter to see Taylor Swift when she comes to Los Angeles in August. They paid about 225 bucks per ticket. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera. Our digital producer is Jared Dang. Our engineers are Jessen Dooler and Nick Esposito. Precious jewels all. I'm Nova Sapo with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Thanks for being with Morning Edition this week on WBUR. Sunny and near 70 today, low 50s tonight, rain in mid-60s on Saturday, mostly sunny and low 70s on Sunday. It's 56 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BioNova Scientific. GMP Manufacturing Services for Biologics. BioNovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. The U.S. military promised to implement policies that would counter extremism in its ranks. The services took in more than 200 reports of extremist activity just last year. So has the Pentagon made progress? We're really stalled out on an issue that's incredibly important. You know, it's like a drop of poison that can destroy all the water. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.